But uh, morning, everybody, and welcome from me. Lovely to see you. Lovely to be here. Welcome to you if you're new, especially in visiting. I hope you have a, a wonderful bank holiday weekend. Happy half term, all of that. Hills and I have been away for just a couple of days uh, on retreat in West Wales and uh, giving thanks that you no longer have to pay to get into their country. It's been a while to cross the Seven Bridge, don't have to pay any longer. Until somebody told me this morning, a lovely Welsh girl who shall remain nameless, Holly, who's been singing, <laughs> said, don't blame the Welsh, blame the French, because apparently the money goes to the French because they built the bridge or something like that. So all these years, who knew? They should have put a sign up, don't blame us, blame the French. That would have been much better. managed to offend quite a few people already. I'll see how many more I can manage before our time is out. I once heard an interview with Bono, or a clip from an interview with Bono, an aging rock star, who you probably know runs a charity that does amazing things to raise awareness and help bring action against poverty in Africa. And the interviewer said to him, so you must Bono, you must have a real heart for the poor. And he said, he replied quite quickly, he said, actually, no, I don't have such a heart for the poor, but I do have a head for the poor. And he went on to slightly explain that uh, essentially he, he, he's skillful in using his celebrity and in using his influence and using his finance and his resources and all that sort of thing to make a difference. But he said, I've got a, heart, a head for the poor uh, without necessarily feeling very moved to do so. So his motives were more kind of rational and calculated than they were um, heartfelt, if you like, or emotional. Now, I'm not going to make any particular comment about that, about Bono or, or that. You can, I'll just leave it hanging there. But I was reminded of that as I was beginning to think and prepare for the rather uncomfortable theme that we've been given to, to explore today. So we're continuing this series, uh, which will run all through the summer, on encounters with Jesus, drawing on different episodes in the gospel accounts that encourage us in how we relate to the world around us how we join in with God's mission, how we join in and play our part in Jesus' kingdom manifesto. Speaking about this a couple of weekends ago in the evening, kingdom, Jesus' manifesto to be and to bring good news to uh, wherever God has planted us in practical demonstration in proclaiming the gospel. But what's going under the spotlight this morning is not so much uh, what we do and how we do it, what we do, what we say, how we go about being uh, bring, bring, bringing good news, being good news. Not so much those as why. Why we do, or why we don't. Uh, you already know that's a little uncomfortable place to look. So if you wanted a subtitle for the message today, it might be this. Motive matters. Or possibly shove a question mark on the end of it. Does it? Ask yourself. Does motive matter? What's your motive in this kind of arena? As we encourage one another then with renewed kind of energy and vision in reaching out in the ways we've already been hearing and being prompted again this morning to, to neighbors, to colleagues, to people in the gym, to friends, to family, all of that, just being and bringing good news around us, being growing greener, stuff at the back, take, take a look at it again, being kingdom ambassadors. We're looking at what's our motive, what, why, what, what, what lies underneath that? And we need to be honest, don't we? And it won't take much to persuade us that our motives will never be as pure as we want them to be. That's just, that's just kind of a fact, a bit of a given. So how much does it matter then if some of that activity, some of that expression, kingdom expression, is based on some other kinds of motives, like fear, maybe? We're afraid of what will happen if we don't engage in that kind of a way. 
We don't want to be left out. Maybe we're fearful that God will disapprove of us if we don't play our part. Pleasing God, pleasing people. Everyone likes to be liked. Doing good stuff is a way of helping people, but it also helps us to be liked. We like to be liked. Is that part of the motive? Religious duty, it's our job. It's just plain and simple. It's our job as Christians. We know that. It's about obedience. Uh, Vicar-type people stand up here and say that we should, and we kind of know that. So it's just about carrying on and doing it, whether we feel like doing it, whether we don't, whether it's a matter of the head, whether it's a matter of the heart, whether it's a bit of a mixture, whatever, we just need to do it. It's just part of the job. It's part of calling ourselves Christian people. Maybe it just makes us look good. It improves our reputation, our status as more devoted followers of Jesus, if we can be seen to be demonstrating all of that. And on and on, you could find a whole load of different things we might put under that category, motive, right? The, The why that resides in our in our hearts, would you agree? As long as we're engaged in it, does it really matter? After all, here's Paul. He spoke about uh, people preaching Jesus from horrible motives like jealousy and rivalry and selfish ambition and even to make money. And then he concludes, Philippians 1:18, but that doesn't matter. Whether their motives are false or genuine, the message about Jesus is being preached either way. So I rejoice, he says. Provocative. So if that's a live question for you, take it up with the Lord, take it up with your Bible. I'm not even going to particularly enter into that, although it's a good thing to, to wrestle with and think a bit about. I actually want to turn our attention to Jesus himself. That's always a good place to go. And we take our lead from him. If you're in the room today and you call yourself a follower of Jesus in any sense, then guess what? That means following him and paying attention to him and to what he was like in his actions and in his attitudes and in his character and in his heart and in his motive from which all of the behavior flows. So passage that we're going to draw on, Rich brought it to us earlier, very, very short, Mark 1, if you want to find it, it'll come on the screens. Here's our launching pad, this little episode, this little encounter. A man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus, begging to be healed. If you're willing, you can heal me and you can make me clean, he said. Moved with compassion. Different translations are available. This is the main uh, word that's used in the Greek. Moved with compassion. Jesus reached out and touched him and said, I'm willing, be healed. And instantly the leprosy disappeared and the man was healed. I actually thought when I was given this passage by Andrew, the Lord is trying to tell me something, let alone you. Uh, in the series just before Easter, we did a, a series on the character of God, do you remember? And in the character of God series, I was given uh, compassion to talk about. So I think there's a little message for me somewhere here. But you've guessed it already. We're honing in on the phrase within this very short passage under this banner. Does motive matter? What's, it, what's the why here? Moved with compassion. Fairly obvious, I'm going to make some fairly obvious statements. What was it, we're told, that was motivating Jesus here to reach out to this man who is an outcast to the society that he's living in, who has all kinds of very obvious needs? What is it that moved him to do something in this situation? Answer, compassion. What was Jesus motivated by in everything that he did? What is the main motivating force behind all of the activity of God in his world? Answer, Compassion, loving kindness. He's not just a God who loves, he is love. And therefore, by definition, everything that is an expression of him in the world, in the way that he relates to us and others, comes out of a heart of love. 
Rick Warren tweeted this just the other week. Compassion is the emotion of the Gospels. Compassion is the emotion of the Gospels. Discuss. From the message I gave last term, it's the first thing that God reveals about himself. Exodus 33, verse 5. Do you remember we were in that passage where Moses says, show me, God, who you are. And in shorthand, compressing the message, God, God says in, in the verse 5, I am the Lord. What's the first word? The compassionate and gracious God. The first self-revelation that he gives. He gives others, but the first one that he gives is that one. Like a stick of rock, whichever way you cut it, there is nothing that he ever has done or will do that ever lacks compassion or isn't motivated by his compassion. And the truth is, friends, I think you know me well enough, I would rather talk about the compassion of God this morning. I'd rather go back to where we were a few weeks ago. And I profoundly believe, actually, that it is only as we grow in personal relationship with God, discovering more of who he is, what he's like, what he's done, how he relates, that we then discover more about who we are and how we are to be and how we are to relate. That's just the way it works. The more of God that we get into us, the more that we devote ourselves, the more that our relationship draws near, then the more that that happens and there's an outflow. But we're looking at Jesus this morning. We need to let Scripture hold up a mirror to ourselves. So we're going to allow ourselves to be challenged this morning, okay? It's a little bit of an uncomfortable ride. Not in a way that will condemn us, but we need to allow that to happen as the Holy Spirit uh, prods us a bit. So, moved by compassion in this uh, text here. Moved by compassion. Reminder, this, this word, a little bit of the word, racham. I think Hills was bringing this to us a, a while ago as well. Um, Hebrew word, very closely associated with another word, which means womb. So the idea is that this is, the connection here is as intimate as a, as a, a mother's emotions and feelings to the baby in her womb. This sense of compassion for the other in front of us. That's what drives God. In the New Testament, some of you will know there's a bunch of words around this. The main one is, is uh, splangizomai, uh, and it's around the, 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 the guts, the, the innards, the liver, the spleen. It's a real earthy kind of meaty, in here kind of a word that Jesus is moved by. It's not a, a cerebral thing. A gut thing. The Latin reminds us, Compassion, cum, with passion, to suffer, suffer with somebody. It's this combination then, isn't it? Let's just get our heads around this. Powerful combination. It's a deep emotional thing. It's a feeling of pain plus a fierce desire that leads to, that moves us, Jesus, to action. It's quite big, isn't it? It's quite strong, very strong. Compassions, then, it's one of the primary feelings that God has towards us as part of his loving nature. And actually, do you know what? At our best, the church is pretty amazing at this. I'm not going to do down the church in this respect. Here was Dionysus writing in 260 AD, and a plague hit Rome. 5,000 people died in a single day. And this pagan writer says this, the Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of the other. Many of them in nursing and caring for others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. 
It's a comment about the church in that moment, in that day. Here's third century Tertullian, another early writer. He says this, It's our care of the helpless and the needy and the hurting. It's our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of many of our opponents. Opponents. Oh, look, they say. See how they love. Look at their compassion. And so on, actually, through the centuries in different ways. Even now, let's not fall too easily for a press which is almost universally negative towards the church. I was reading just this week, there's a survey that came out two years ago. It's called, um, Dig it a Ta- uh, what's it called? Talking Jesus, Dig Deeper. Really interesting survey. You can Google it. A whole bunch of things uh, that the whole nation was surveyed on in relation to the church, in relation to people like us, in relation to Christians, and so on. And, and in, the, in the bit where it's, we're surveying, what do you think about the Christian people that you know, the followers of Jesus that you know, very high percentage given for words like friendly and caring and welcoming and kind. And actually an incredibly tiny percentage, less than 5%, responded with things that we might expect, narrow-minded, hypocrites, homophobic, boring. Very small. You wouldn't necessarily believe that from the press that we sometimes get, but that's a, a big survey done quite recently. Anyhow, what will, it be, what will be said, not in the second or the third century or through the centuries, what will be said of, of us here, Trinity Cheltenham, in our period, in our epoch, when the, uh, the history is written? What scars and stories will we have that bring glory to God? Where will there be testimony, where is there testimony now, of a costly compassion in us, in you, in us? Going to explore it a little bit more from a well-known story that Jesus told, so not so much an encounter, but a, a message that he gave. I just want to say this first, though. Let's be just a little bit careful that we don't limit the idea of compassion to just those with very obvious presenting needs. So in the story that we've had from Mark 1, the leper has very obvious presenting needs. Of course he does. They're right there. They're visible for all to see. And Jesus is compassionate in that circumstance. But the Bible tells us that Jesus is all compassion. And if you flick through the, the scriptures from beginning to end, especially as we, we talk about Jesus in the Gospels, he reaches out to all kinds of situations, not just sick people, those who are suffering in all kinds of ways. Those who are starving, those who are struggling, those who are sinful, those who are scared, those who are sad. But then get this too, for the context of our term especially, the word compassion is also used, the same word, when Jesus sees people who are simply lost. Matthew 9, 36. When he saw the crowds, and there's no indication that they were presenting with a particular need, that these weren't the sick, they weren't all suffering, they weren't all in a place of obvious pain. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were confused and helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. So compassion for the lost. Compassion compassion for sheep without a shepherd. Compassion for those seeking answers, seeking truth, seeking God, but not finding it. Their external circumstances might well be fine. Most of the people that we know, their external circumstances are pretty okay. Well fed, well sheltered, well housed. Well-educated, maybe. Well-mannered, probably, in Cheltenham. Well-employed. But Jesus 
still looks at that crowd, you're imagining your crowd now, as I've mentioned that, people you know, people you rub shoulders with every day. He looks at that crowd with compassion. Because for all the fact that many of their needs are being well met, the biggest need of everyone, by far, is connection with the Good Shepherd. The biggest need, by far, of everyone is connection. It's to know the love and the forgiveness and the saving grace of God. It's to be not lost, but to be found in him. That is the biggest need, by far. It's the eternal need. It's the need without which those who are lost are destined to eternity without God. That's what he died for. Cost him his life to do something about that. So anyone who sits in that category that we may know is a sheep without a good shepherd, the good shepherd. And that's somebody, therefore, that stirs the compassion, the guts-level compassion of Jesus. So bear that in mind, please, as we read this story, where the guy in this story, again, has some clear physical needs. But let him stand as an example of anybody that we come across in any kind of need, physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, whatever, or whether they're just part of the 95%, we reckon, in this community that currently don't know the love of God, don't know the love of the Good Shepherd and are not yet in his family. So Luke 10 is the story. You'll know it very well. Some people ask ask Jesus basically the secret of successful living, and he says this, love God with everything you've got, and love your neighbor with everything you've got. Love God, love your neighbor, do this, he says, and you will live. You'll succeed in life if you do those things. Receive the love of God with everything that you've got. Give away the love of God with everything you've got. That's it. But the guys hearing this, you'll remember in the story, they want a bit of wiggle room. They're a little bit uncomfortable about that. They they, they want to just have a bit of wiggle room. So just how much loving are we talking about, Jesus? Who is my neighbor, they say. See, if there's a neighbor category, then hey, there must be a non-neighbor category. So where's the line, Jesus? Where, Where can we kind of draw that line which just lets us off the hook a little bit? Tell us a little bit more about this compassion thing. So he tells the story. You know the story I'm about to tell. It's this story, well-known kind of pattern, of the rule of three pattern going on, familiar to a Jewish audience, familiar to us as well. It's kind of the Englishman, the Irishman, the Scotsman type of story. It's the blonde, the banker, and the bishop kind of story. Um, In fact, I heard one of those the other day. It's really, really funny. And actually, if this was the evening crowd whose attention span is just a little bit flimsy, uh, and I'd probably have to tell it, but the thing I love about you guys is that you're sort of mature, and um, you just don't need oratorical gimmicks like that, so we're just going to carry on. Luke 10, 31. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. You've heard it a million times. If you did Sunday school, you were taught in Sunday school. If you know others who are taught in Sunday school, you've still heard the story. We know it. We call it the Good Samaritan. You picture the scene. It's a scary passage, though. It's a scary passage because, for me, the characters, they represent something. They help me get in touch with something of the internal resistance that I find inside me. When I think about, or when I'm trying to explore, motives about loving people well, 
and how that looks in my life. It makes me think about the kind of pure compassion that Jesus had that lay behind all of his interactions with everybody, even when he was angry with them, by the way, still motivated by compassion, of course. So here comes number, a man number one. He's the priest. He has high standing as a priest, Almost certainly, there's plenty of money swilling around the, the temple system, so every chance that this guy's fairly wealthy, he'd certainly have a donkey. He sees the man, no more than a, foot, you know, a few feet away. We're told it's a narrow road. It's not the M5. He sees him, and yet, as close as he is to this man in huge pain, he walks on by. He hurries on. He comes, he sees, he goes. And we don't know why he doesn't stop. We're not told. But here's a couple of possibilities that might speak to us. It's a dangerous road, there's no police, there's no 999 service. Stopping might mean putting himself at risk. So how do we summarize that? Is the price just too high? Here's part of my internal resistance against being even more compassionate, wanting to, to reach out with compassion. The price is just too high. The cost of caring is just too much. To visit your sick uncle 25 miles away takes some time and takes some petrol. To sit and listen to your chatty neighbor pouring out her troubles, you know you're going to be there for an hour. You won't get a word in edgeways. She never asks about you. It's going to take a bit of time. It's going to take a bit of energy. Why offer to pray for the guy at work who says that he's not sleeping very well? Because it could be a bit embarrassing. Price is a bit high. The lonely person you know at the gym. You've had some interesting conversations with them in the gym where it's kind of convenient. To invite them to continue the conversation in the pub, that might take a bit of organizing, might move you away from your favorite TV show, whatever. You fill in the blanks. To stop and chat with a homeless person, to mow somebody's lawn, to get somebody shopping, to build a relationship with some people that you don't know very well yet, but you see them quite often. Cost of compassion is often high in time, in money, in petrol, in emotional energy, in reputation perhaps. And getting your hands covered with baked beans, frankly. Putting your hand in the baked bean jar in order to, to get hold of a blessing that might be a blessing to somebody else. And you may, may not get anything in return. The price is quite high. And of course, don't hear me say that we're the answer to everybody's problem. We're clearly not that. We need our boundaries. We need to take account of our own needs, our own priorities. Of course, he, of course we do. Jesus did. Jesus didn't step into Every, go around trying to fix every problem and step into every need. But we do find him willingly paying a high price for loving. Here's Hebrews 12. Consider him who for the joy set before him even endured the cross. He went that far. What might help me grow in compassion and pay a higher price? Consider him. Consider him. Consider him more, the one who died. Allow his love to move me, shape me. How far, somebody said this, how far is too far when he went that far? Price too high. Another possibility from the priest is that maybe my prejudice is just too great. See, I'm a caring sort of a person, the priest could say, that's part of my moral code, but I'm not really sure about this guy on the road because I don't really know who he is. And whether I help him or not might depend on who he is. It could be that he's just too different from me. And I'm not going to get involved. I can't relate to him. See, the priest had a bunch of rules to think about. You'll remember this, the Torah, the instructions and so on, which included don't get near dead things, don't get near unclean things. We're not sure if he's dead. He might be groaning. He looks half dead. We certainly don't know if he's, if he's uh, one of us or not. We don't know if he's Jewish or if he's a Gentile. 
He's been stripped, so I can't tell from the clothes. He can't talk, so I can't tell from the accent. One man's boxers look like another man's boxers, frankly. There's not a lot to identify this guy. Is he an insider or an outsider, or is he just a human being in need? Again, friends, I'm sorry if it's a challenge. You don't need to tell me that we all have our prejudices. We just do. It's not just a religious spirit that does that. It's part of the human condition. Our bias may well be unconscious at times. Perhaps sometimes it's conscious, but it's a kind of human instinct. And it's not necessarily a bad one. We kind of see, we, we slightly internally categorize, label, we you know, identify. Who is this person in front of me? Oh, it's an old person with memory problems. Oh, it's a feral teenager with no qualifications and who's very angry. Oh, it's a person of different skin color to me whose relationship has just broken down. Oh, it's an Oxbridge-educated lawyer with a nice car who's depressed and alcoholic. Oh, it's a single dad having a tough time with three kids. It's a student with a gambling addiction. It's a GP going through divorce and on and on and on. And of course, we will find ourselves, it's normal and it's right that we relate better to some than to others. We're, we're more capable of, of beginning to step into some kinds of needs than others. We're called in that way uniquely, and that's so right, just because you have a, a particular heart or particular leaning and calling and equipping to, to, uh, to I don't know, to, towards um, teenagers with, with eating problems, uh, I, and I don't, but that's, that's fine. But withholding compassion on the basis that you're not, one, you're not like me, you're not one of us, can't identify with that need, I even judge you maybe for bringing it on yourself, that is not to see how Jesus saw or love as Jesus loved. So there may be some kind of hierarchy of need to some extent, there's a homeless person struggling penniless and that's a different kind of need, different scale of need from the millionaire on the hill with a broken leg. But there is no hierarchy of compassion. It doesn't make me more compassionate to step into one kind of need or less compassionate to step into a different one. Jesus is all compassion. A wealthy tax collector, a woman caught in adultery, a blind beggar, a powerful Roman soldier, a hungry crowd, ten lepers, a rich young ruler, and on and on and on. No prejudice. And of course, the, the compassion is expressed differently all the time too. Sometimes he just prays for them. Sometimes he meets a need uh, and feeds them. Sometimes it's about healing. Sometimes it's about delivering them from demonic oppression. Sometimes it's a need to teach them. Sometimes it's about sending some other people to respond to their need. A whole variety of ways. But always, compassion leads to action. The price was never too high for Jesus. His prejudice was certainly never too great. Back in the story, going to move fast. Levite, man too, comes. Same thing. Comes, sees, goes. This guy's a kind of temple assistant. He probably did not have a whole load of money, the suggestion would be. Certainly didn't have a donkey. But he could have done something. He could have stopped. He could have prayed. He could have said something. He could have found some water. He could have moved him into the shade. Something he could have done. Why am I not more compassionate? Is it sometimes that I persuade myself that I'm too powerless? That I can't make much of a difference? The scale of the need is too overwhelming. Teenage pregnancy. I'm overwhelmed. Drug abuse, pornography addiction, modern day slavery, or even my friend's anxiety, or my mate who hasn't got a job, let alone the, the, the 95%. I'm just not sure I can make a difference. I don't know what to do. I feel powerless. 
It's the starfish story, isn't it? The man on the beach, loads of starfish there. They've been washed up, they're dying, and he goes along and he picks one up and he throws it in the sea and he picks another one up and he throws it in the sea. There's millions of them. And the other guy comes along and says, what on earth are you doing? How are you, you can't, look at them, there's far too many. How could you possibly make a difference, even in three hours? And the man just carries on, picks one up, throws it in the sea. Well, he said, I made a difference to that one. I made a difference to that one. And sure, there may be a Wilberforce in the room, there may be a Shaftesbury in the room, it may be your calling and equipping to do something on that extraordinary scale. Most of us aren't in that position, but let's not fall for the hideous lie that we haven't got what it takes to make a difference. As human beings, let alone, frankly, as those who might call ourselves followers of Jesus, with the Holy Spirit of God resident within us, his power available to us, sharing something of his heart, whose mission, our mandate is to destroy the works of the devil, to bring God's love and blessing. Don't despise the day of small things. A meal cooked for a, a family under stress makes a difference to that family right there on that day, doesn't it? Cinema tickets, the offer of babysitting, stopping to pray for the person there and then rather than saying you'll do it later by text. Whatever. I can't is usually I won't. Price too high, prejudice too great. Maybe we persuade ourselves that we're too powerless. In the end, I think these characters, they, they just didn't care enough. Let's just summarize all of that by saying there's a preoccupation with self here. They may have cared or said they cared, but they didn't care enough to do anything. So frankly, that's not caring, is it? Self-interest outweighed their interest in making someone else's situation better, which is essentially a way of saying my stuff is more important than your stuff, which is essentially a way of saying I'm more important than you. Preoccupation is at the root of most of our, of our issues, ultimately. I've got time to tell this classic story of... Um, study done on, on faith and compassion. It was a group of theology students. It was in Canada a few years ago. Forgive me if you've heard the story before. Half of them are told to, to prepare a story on a particular Bible topic. The other half are prepared, uh, told to prepare a Bible study, a talk on this passage, on the, on the Good Samaritan. And then one by one, they're invited to go to a different building, different part of the campus, to give their, their talk. And the time schedule is quite tight. And so they, so they walk, and as they walk from this building to this building, one by one, they pass a man lying in the gutter, groaning. Of course, it's a setup, but they don't know that. And the large majority of would-be pastors, theological students, walk straight past the guy in, in the gutter. And a minority of those who stopped, even in this study, were those who were about to give a talk on the Good Samaritan. You guessed it. Amazing, isn't it? Because just hearing the story, as we're doing again today, just knowing the stuff, just knowing what's right, having a whole history of going, yeah, being familiar with Jesus' character and his example and his teaching, as vital as all of that is, in the end, it doesn't make us do it. Here's man number three, the Samaritan. He comes, he sees, he doesn't go. He stays, he stops, he does something, he steps in. He puts aside prejudice. He says, I, I have got some power to do something. I'm going to pay the price of caring. He is interruptible. And he spends time and money, and you know the rest of the story. And of course, it's scandalous. Because who's this guy? He's the enemy to the audience, to, to Jesus' Jewish audience. He's the Samaritan. He's the one that you love to hate. He's the one that you love to put in the non-neighbor category. Who was the neighbor to the wounded guy? This guy was. That person whose category is just the worst category of, of all for you. Arsenal supporters. 
or whoever. I'm not going to risk filling in your blank for you, but you'll you'll know what I'm saying. That person, and we're to love our neighbor. No one's excluded. I'm going to need to wrap this up. How much do I need the Holy Spirit to renew my mind and to soften the hard soil of my heart so that I'm more aligned with his? How much do we need to keep singing that song, the line of the song that goes, break my heart for what breaks yours? And it's not just a natty line of a good song, is it? When we sing that and others, we need to sing that as a prayer. And frankly, folks, we know what breaks his heart. So we're not waiting to find out what breaks his heart. We know an awful lot about what breaks his heart. Because he showed us, Jesus shows us all the time. We know what broke his body. And that breaks God's heart. That fierce longing that everyone would know his love. It's been one of my daily prayers for some time. Lord, increase my compassion. Reduce everything else. I don't want to see through eyes of criticism or judgment. I want to see with your eyes of compassion. And we simply can't move, friends, in that direction, hardly at all, without the love and the compassion of God being more and more at work in our hearts. That's where it starts and continues, softening them. See, one of the reasons that we, many of us struggle to forgive truly from the heart is because we don't know, we haven't got a grip on how much we have been forgiven. So in this area, one of the main reasons that we have a deficit in compassion, where we do, is that we don't have a good grip, a good grasp on how much we are loved by a compassionate God. So I'm going to paraphrase Mr. Third Century Tertullian as we finish. What do they say of us? What will they say of us in 5, 10, 15, 20 years' time? The Christ followers of Trinity showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of the other. Oh, look how they love. Look at their compassion. Let it be so, in Jesus' name. Let's stand.